uh, thank you gift that is called Jazz and Justice for a pledge of $100. You can call the pledge line right now at 212-209-2950 to show your support of this radio station that provides you a plat that provides a program like Building Bridges, a platform to present such material as they have presented uh, during the past hour. 212-209-2950 or go to give to WBAI.org online. Stay tuned. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, the Independent News Hour will return at its regular time next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Stay tuned for the WBAI Evening News coming up. It is almost one minute past 6 p.m. Stay tuned. Good evening. As we cover today in the news, reports that uh, uh, there's going to be a new secretary of uh, uh, a new head of the uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Um, he says that uh, maybe Trump had it right when it came to a wall and to his Title 42 ruling that prevents many people from claiming asylum due to the COVID epidemic at the border. Meanwhile, we're going to talk about the uh, kidnapping of 17 uh, Americans and a Canadian in Haiti and the investigation being led now by the FBI. And in city politics, we talked to Citizen Union President Betsy Gottbaum about the mayor's uh, – the report that says the mayor – the Department of Investigation report on the mayor that says that uh, he used over $300,000 in services from the police department to move around and protect his family that some of which he might not have deserved or had a right to use. With these and other reports, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Tuesday, October 19th, 2021. A Navy report has concluded there were sweeping failures by commanders, crew members, and others that fueled the July 2020 arson fire that destroyed the USS Bonhomme Richard, calling the massive five-day blaze in San Diego preventable and unacceptable. While one sailor has been charged with setting the fire, the more than 400-page report lists three dozen officers and sailors whose failings either directly led to the ship's loss or contributed to it. The report describes a ship in disarray with combustible materials scattered and stored improperly. It said maintenance reports were falsified and that 87% of the fire stations on board had equipment problems or had not been inspected. Due to the damage, the Navy decommissioned the ship in April. In August, Seaman Apprentice Ryan Mays was charged with aggravated arson and the willful hazarding of a vessel. He's denied setting the fire. And in a Senate confirmation hearing today, President Joe Biden's pick to head U.S. Customs and Border Protection signaled his support for two of the Trump administration's most controversial border enforcement measures. Appearing before the Senate Finance Committee, Tucson Police Chief Chris Magnus praised Title 42, a sweeping Trump-era public health order authorizing the summary expulsion of migrants and asylum seekers without an immigration hearing. Magnus also said he would support some expansion of the wall at the southern border. Magnus told the senators he would support mandatory vaccination for asylum seekers. Tell me, as regards immunization, 
Why are we not requiring those who are being allowed to come into the United States to be vaccinated for COVID before being released into the United States, particularly in the context that the Biden administration is asking anyone that has a nexus with federal government to require their employees to get vaccinated? Any of those uh, individuals, migrants coming into the country should be immunized. Thank you. And is, should be required to be immunized as a condition of being allowed to continue? Senator, that's something I, I definitely want to explore. It seems reasonable to me. And that was the Chris Magnus. He is the uh, President Biden's nominee to head up the world's largest or the nation's largest police force. Title 42 has blocked any asylum seekers from uh, processing at ports along the southern border and was used to expel more than 7,000 Haitians in a matter of just two weeks. Magnus also uh, dealt with a question from Republicans concerning the description of what's been going on at the border. The Republicans asked a yes-no question, is it a crisis? And the nominee said it's just a lot more complicated than that. Do we have a crisis at the border? Yes or no? Senator, let me assure you that no one believes there is greater urgency to this matter than I do. I have been at the southern border. So it's I, urgent. I've heard the characterization urgent uh, strikes the common ear as, as less than a crisis. Are you saying there, there's I, not a crisis at the border? Senator, I, no, I don't think there I don't think, I don't speak to urgent as less serious at all. In fact, is I, there a crisis or is there not a crisis at the border? Senator, I would say that my highest priority is going to. I didn't ask your priority. I asked to characterize the situation on the border. Is there a crisis at the border? You've been nominated to serve as commissioner to the Customs and Border Patrol uh, Agency um, at a time that I regard as a crisis. Are you saying there is not a crisis? Senator, what I'm certainly trying to convey is how serious I take what's happening at the border and the amount of work that I want to put into addressing it. Noted, noted. DHS uh, tells us that we've already seen over 1.3 million illegal border crossings so far this year. Uh, That's about 1.5 times the population of Indianapolis, Indiana. I'd say that's a crisis. what number of illegal crossings would you consider to be a crisis? What if we were to quintuple that number? Would you then call it a crisis? Senator, I'm, I appreciate your question, and I'm already doing my best to acknowledge that the situation is very serious. It would be, regardless of what we call it, okay. it, is, it, I'll move is, on. it is something important to me. And that was today's hearings in Congress. And in more news concerning Haiti, 17 people who traveled to Haiti for a Christian mission trip to build houses are being held hostage by one of the country's most notorious gangs known as 400 Mawaza. The gang is asking for a $17 million ransom or $1 million for each person in the group. 16 of those who were kidnapped on Saturday are U.S. citizens and one is a Canadian. The group includes an eight-month-old infant and children who are three, six, 14 and 15 years old. The group is from the Ohio-based Christian Aid Ministries. A spokesperson for the missionaries spoke from their compound in Haiti earlier today. And it is our prayer on their behalf that they would turn from their evil ways and that they would come to the God that we worship, the God, the one God, and that they would receive forgiveness for the evil things they've done and be, be changed. 
And so we can believe and ask him uh, that he would do something miraculous and powerful to deliver them from the men who have taken them captive. And yet knowing, keeping it open that if he chooses to allow them to all die, that, that that's okay. And that was earlier today in Haiti. The 400 Mawaza gang involved with this kidnapping allegedly is the same group that kidnapped five priests, two nuns, and three others in April. That group includes two French citizens. In Washington, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says President Biden is following the developments in Haiti and the FBI is on the case. The president has been briefed and is receiving regular updates on what the State Department and the FBI are doing to bring these individuals home safely. The FBI is part of a coordinated U.S. government effort to get the U.S. citizens involved to safety. Uh, due to operational considerations, we're not going to go into too much detail on that, but can confirm their engagement. And the U.S. Embassy in Port-au-Prince is coordinating with local authorities and providing assistance to the families to resolve the situation. We can't get into too many too many details, I should say, about the individuals and and their identities because of Privacy Act waiver considerations. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, according to reports, the gang's leader, Wilson Joseph, has been sought by police on charges of murder, attempted murder, kidnapping, auto theft and the hijacking of trucks. And in Washington, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said today that Democrats want a deal this week on what he called a new framework for passing President Biden's economic agenda. We had a very spirited discussion at our um, lunch, passionate, strong, and there was universal, universal agreement in that room that we have to come to an agreement and we got to get it done and want to get it done this week. Yes, so first question. Explain us what that means. There's lots of meetings going on. The president's meeting regularly with people. Probably the president, the speaker and I just talk now about once a day. And there'll be all kinds of meetings together and separately to get this done. But we're really the pace is picked up. The desire to get it done is strong. And as I said, universal agreement in the room. We have to come to an agreement. Schumer's comments came after a closed door lunch of Senate Democrats. And on the same day, Biden planned separate meetings with moderates and progressives in the hopes of reaching an agreement on an overarching plan, as well as passing a separate bipartisan infrastructure bill in the House. We agreed on an agreement. I can't help but giggle a little bit to that one. Also in Washington, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said he's hoping Republicans will steer clear of relitigating the bitter 2020 election and will instead focus on the flawed Biden administration, what he called the flawed Biden administration, in a bid to win in the 2022 midterm elections. Well, I do think we need to be talking about the future and not the past. I think the American people are focusing on this administration, what it's doing to the country. And it's my hope that the 22 election will be a referendum on the performance of the current administration, not a rehash of suggestions about what may have happened in 2020. McConnell was responding to a question about a former uh, president about former President Donald Trump, whom the National Republican Senatorial Committee invited to speak at their recent retreat in Palm Beach. Trump is pushing the GOP to support his election fraud theories. And in related news, a House committee tasked with investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection is moving swiftly today to hold at least one of Donald Trump's allies in contempt as the former president is pushing back on the probe in a new lawsuit. Trump is aggressively trying to block the committee's work by directing former 
White House aide Steve Bannon not to answer questions in the probe while also suing the panel to try and prevent Congress from obtaining former White House documents. But lawmakers on the House committee say they will not back down as they gather facts and testimony about the attack involving Trump supporters. They left dozens of police officers injured, sent lawmakers running for their lives and interrupted the certification of President Joe Biden's victory. The hearings will be uh, broadcast live on C-SPAN tonight, starting at 7.30. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. New York Governor Kathy Hochul continuing in the tradition of former Governor Andrew Cuomo has been holding COVID-19 briefings crammed with information on how the state is battling the COVID-19 virus. Reporter questions at the tail of the briefing lay bare political divisions within the state Democratic Party. Linda Perry reports. Elections fast approaching, there's been much talk about endorsements. The Daily News recently came out for New York City mayoral candidate Eric Adams. But in Buffalo, even though Democratic Socialist mayoral candidate India Walton won the Democratic primary, New York Governor Kathy Hochul hasn't endorsed Walton. With respect to Buffalo, uh, we have a unique situation there. Democratic incumbent Mayor Byron Brown, who Walton defeated, is waging a November write-in campaign. Hochul, a native of Buffalo, is hedging her bet. Well, we have two Democrats running in most races we have. We have a Democrat versus a Republican in November. I didn't weigh in. And that is the process allows people to exercise different ways to be considered by the voters in November as well. And that's part of the state law, that that is an option available to them. But the voters in Buffalo chose Walton, yet Hochul is not endorsing her. And U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer hasn't endorsed her either. And not only has the chair of the state Democratic Party, Jay Jacobs, not endorsed Walton, but when asked about this on Spectrum News yesterday, he responded, if the KKK's David Duke came to New York and registered as a Democrat and won a primary, would I have to endorse him? What Jay Jacobs did was wrong. It was very disturbing clearly unacceptable, and it was hurtful. India Walton did not deserve that. But I'll tell you, I'm glad he apologized. I hope he apologizes to her personally and that something like this does not happen again. India Walton was a guest on Arthur Schwartz's program Saturday on WBAI's Advocating for Justice. You can hear their interview by going to WBAI.org. And in COVID news, Governor Hochul says the infection rate has stabilized, but that we are heading into a vulnerable time with holidays approaching. She says hospitalization numbers are flattening, but we need to get people vaccinated to continue to drive down numbers. 86.1% of New Yorkers 18 and older have received one vaccine dose, and 77.4% of this age group have completed the vaccine series. Hochul wants to see more young people vaccinated. Protect your kids. You do not want to have your child ending up with COVID. Hochul wants parents to take advantage of vaccine availability for 12 to 17-year-olds. And she says after conversations with the White House that New York is expecting Pfizer doses for 5 to 11-year-olds. There are 1.5 million children in the state of New York in this age group. And she's urging parents to make appointments with their child's pediatrician for these vaccines now. I know how this goes. I know how hard it is to make a pediatrician appointment. So calling on parents to make their appointments now. But if they cannot get an appointment in time, I would love to see it more available in schools. I think that's the next best safe place. 
We're going to work on permission slips. We're going to make sure that the schools uh, have the resources they need. We'll give them the money if they need more money. We're going to be there to make this happen. Weighing in on booster shots, Governor Hochul says we're waiting for more information from the federal government on how this is all going to work. Last week, the FDA recommended Moderna and J&J booster shots, but she says we're still waiting for final approval on that and that the state is also waiting for information about getting different doses and getting different vaccines for boosters from what you already have. And finally, there's a new centralized site for COVID-19 data, which includes information about vaccinations, schools, hospitalization, and it shows how various zip codes are doing with the virus. Go to ny.gov slash COVID-19 for key aspects of the epidemic as it affects New York State. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York. And thanks, Linda. Meanwhile, in his daily news briefing, Mayor Bill de Blasio batted a question about his poor showing in polls of potential opponents to Governor Hochul's uh, reelection if she runs again. And she said she is next year uh, in the gubernatorial election in 2022. De Blasio is trailing by double digits. I have a long, rich history of uh, being an underdog. I have seen polls like that literally every time I've run for office. Um, If I worried about stuff like that, I wouldn't be sitting in this chair right now, literally. If I had been daunted and overawed by early polling, uh, I wouldn't have bothered to keep forging ahead. And I'm glad I forged ahead. So uh, we're talking about an election that's a long way off, and we're talking about polling that's over the years gotten less and less reliable. So we'll see what the future brings. And in more news from City Hall, after a two-year probe into the city's mayoral security detail, the Department of Investigation, known as the DOI, released a scathing 47-page report this month that determined a pattern of inappropriate security usage by Mayor Bill de Blasio and his family that it says amounts to a misuse of public resources for private private benefit. Mayor de Blasio uh, defended himself today. What I've tried to do throughout my time in City Hall is very, very consistently follow the rules, do what was appropriate, and focus on the needs of the people. Uh, When uh, DOI presented me last year with a very thoughtful, very balanced report that sought input from all different perspectives uh, related to the issues of policing, uh, came back with criticisms uh, and recommendations, I embraced it. What I saw in this report this year, however, was the polar opposite. Um, There were just consistent, huge inaccuracies and uh, a failure to pursue the truth with the people who had it, including the leading uh, security experts at the NYPD. So there literally throughout the report are so many inaccuracies that I can't tell you that I know that that happened. I don't know that that happened. I don't have evidence that happened. I never heard of that happening. So where I go is to say, okay, NYPD, look at this. Uh, He's your employee. Look at it. They've looked at it. They don't find anything. Now it's been sent to Manhattan DA. We'll see what they say. Uh, But I'm not going uh, by the report that unfortunately has proven to be in so many ways inaccurate. Go ahead, Joaf. Respectfully, whether you're aware of of whether something happened or not is is not the basis for it being fact or not. Um, You can walk down the hall and speak to the City Hall Council or NYPD uh, uh, Legal Bureau if if you need to affirm these facts for yourself. But 
why is it that you need to confirm facts that your own Department of Investigation confirmed? I think I've answered this a lot of times. The NYPD looks at this issue. If the NYPD had a concern and saw something, if my counsel's office, if anywhere, found something to confirm this, we'll follow up on that. But I just don't have a confirmation that this is exactly what happened. Mayor de Blasio, one potential criminal charge that could emerge from the DOI investigation, NYPD Inspector Howard Redmond, who is in charge of the mayor's security, has been referred to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office for possible criminal prosecution. The report accuses Redmond of obstructing the investigation by failing to respond to multiple requests to hand over to investigators his city hall and NYPD-issued cell phones. DOI discovered not only deleted messages they reported, that they were able to track on his phones or other security detail members, uh, pardon me, on the phones of other security detail members, but also an attempt by Redmond to destroy his NYPD-issued phone. WBAI spoke with Betsy Gottbaum. She's the executive director of Citizens Union. She says what the mayor may have done is not criminal, just wrong. I think it's appropriate, and I think it's appropriate for one reason, and that is that I believe that both the police department and campaign finance board need to give very clear direction as to what and how elected officials who have security should use them. I mean, I do think that's a very important point. And as we start a new administration, I think it's important to get that information out. Because when I was public advocate, there was some confusion about about what, what we could and couldn't do. Now, we knew then, and I knew then, that if you were campaigning and you used uh, a city vehicle and you use the police, you had to reimburse, um, you had to reimburse the city for, for using the police, using the car and the police stuff, so to speak, um, for a campaign. Um, and, and the, the actual salary of the officers did, was not included because that's something very different. I mean, they, they get their salary anyway. So, so that, and that, but the second thing is, is, and I do totally agree that the family of particularly the mayor should be protected. I, I actually believe that. I mean, I'm sure that there are threats all the time. But what is really disturbing about this, and it's, and, and I'm sure that we all knew this kind of thing. You couldn't have your brother picked up at the railroad station and taken around. I mean, come on. The brother, the brother is not immediate family living in New York City. So, those two things, the using it for the campaign and um, and and then having his brother picked up, I think that the mayor should reimburse the city for that. I think that, gov- you know, government stuff should only be used for government business. Why are these um, unethical or wrong or shouldn't be done if they're not criminal? What he's doing is, is not something that you would call the police over or have an investigation in that way. He's not stealing no. money. But why is it important? Well, he is. Yeah, he is sort of stealing money if he's using um, if he's using the car and and government uh, government stuff, government items. If he's using it for things that have, you know, like the campaign outside of the city. Come on. Um, and and like picking up the brother who came in from Boston a couple of times that that's using government items and government time and government protection for something that has nothing to do with the city government. I mean, I, I agree, though. I do say that they have to be far clearer, um, um, more definitive about what what 
what is good, what can be done and what can't be. It's not criminal. No, I've never said it's criminal. I just said he ought to reimburse. I mean, you know, that. But what about Inspector Howard Redmond? He was actually, his part in this was uh, transferred to the district attorney. And the media was bringing up today that the inspector who was in charge of the detail allegedly tried to destroy his phone and refused to send his oh, phone well, in. Sure. And, and that was actually sent, out, sent to the district attorney. Well, that is actually a very different issue for, as far as I can see. I mean, if, you ta- if you're just destroying evidence, even though it isn't a crime, you know, it, it, you're destroying evidence that'll, that'll make it uh, make you have to do something about if you've done something. I'll give them, let me give you an example. For example, let's say um, he did go pick up. He had the, the, the team, the security team, go pick up his brother at the, at, at the railroad station. Now, if, if the inspector saw that on an email or saw that on a, on a, on a, on a notebook, and he tried to destroy that, you know, that information. That's wrong. I, I wouldn't say it's criminal. I just think it's wrong, and you shouldn't do that. And the police know they shouldn't do that. Great. I mean, that's sort of destroying evidence. And frankly, I, I have no problem with security at all for the family. I, I think that's very necessary. But the excesses that happened. Sorry, I, you know, I look. I had problems. I, I had some problems. I, I people said I used the car erroneously um i always tried having done that having said i did that i always tried to reimburse for anything i did personally i would always be in the car if i picked up my husband or if i picked up somebody you know outside of city business i would always be in the car and that that's okay but but i will say one thing we never got straight serious guidelines on what we could and couldn't do and and there i think that we've we've got to insist that that happens Betsy Gottbaum is the, is the executive director of Citizens Union. And finally, after a delay of several months because of the COVID pandemic, New York City will launch the nation's largest and most comprehensive workforce development program for at-risk LGBTQ youth. New York City Unity Works is a $2.6 billion, uh, pardon me, million dollar initiative that will reach 90 participants over the next four years. It's targeted at young adults ages 16 to 24 who are homeless or at risk of experiencing homelessness. New York City First Lady Charlene McRae introduced the program today. They're going to gain exposure to a variety of different industries, especially those that are growing quickly right now, like media, human and social resources, social services, the arts, as well as more traditional pathways. Every young person will be paired with mentors who are deeply invested in their success, and there are job developers, case navigators, support staff who will help them plan for the future, master the skills they need, and make those key connections and decisions that that all young people have to make that help them down the road. At the same time, they are receiving everything they need for stability as they enter adulthood. That means food, clothing, mental health care, including counseling. And I want to emphasize that we're staying with these young people for the long term. And that's New York City First Lady Shirley McRae, Community Development in Partnership with New York City Center for Youth Development and the Ali Forney Center. That's who's helping put this together. It's the late, uh, nation's largest LBG, LGBTQ homeless youth service provider. Jamie Pavlovich is executive director of the Empire State Coalition of Youth and Family Services. She describes the importance of the program. 
On any given night in New York City, over 4,500 youth and young adults sleep in shelters and on the streets. Too many have been forced out of their homes because of family rejection and or abuse because of their sexual orientation and gender identity. LGBTQ youth are disproportionately represented in the youth homelessness population, both nationally and here in New York City. And if there's anything that the youth with the lived experience of homelessness have taught us, it is that cookie-cutter approaches to very unique situations often do not work. Through this first-of-its-kind programming, Unity Works will provide holistic supports to LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness through social-emotional support, educational assistance, and employment training and placement. Each year, unfortunately, two, under 2% 2 of youth that exit youth shelters move into their own apartments. Without access to jobs that pay, pay fair and livable wages, youth are too often forced to cycle in and out of homelessness and housing stability. This is especially true for our LGBTQ young people and was only made the COVID-19 pandemic. By the city choosing the Alley Forney Center as the home of the Unity Work Program, New York City is recognizing the amazing work that AFC has done to provide affirming services to some of our city's most vulnerable youth. And we are confident that given their track record of providing shelter services and supports to LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness, that once up and running, the Unity Works Program will change the trajectory of countless youth. We would also ask that in the next administration, this program is continued without pause. Jamie Pavlovich is executive director of the Empire State Coalition of Youth and Family Services.